My wife and I met at God's Bible School in Cincinnati um, 35 years ago or more, and I had been there for two years when she came as a freshman. I was one of those uh, college students that squeezed a four-year ministerial degree into six years. And she came and squeezed a, literally, a five-year big education program into four years so she could graduate with me. And I like to say, um, I, she graduated magna cum laude and I graduated thank the laude. <laughs> but uh, I met her there and we fell in love. I fell in love with her before she told me she loved me, but... Uh, it was meant to be, and uh, we've had a wonderful almost 31 years of married life together. And uh, after Bible college, or actually the last couple of years of Bible college, we started pastoring in Franklin, Ohio, and then uh, we were there for 13 years. And then God very clearly called us to the country of Mexico uh, to be missionaries. Our uh, six years there coincided with uh, the president of Mexico, Felipe Calderon, his one six-year term. As you know, in the United States, the president can serve two four-year terms. In Mexico, the president can serve one six-year term. And our six years in Mexico perfectly coincided with President Calderon's six-year term. The reason that is important is because it was during his presidency that the violence, the drug violence in Mexico, uh, reached a fevered pitch, and uh, Mexico became uh, littered with bodies, and bloody battles ensued on streets and towns and villages all over that country. And we were there, debatably, during the most dangerous time of uh, the drug wars because it was those six years that the president called out the Mexican military to fight the drug cartels. And we lived surrounded by uh, drug violence. We, uh, part of living in a third world country and certainly a part of living in Mexico were the constant regular... Uh, uh, checkpoints, uh, driving down any road, any highway, wherever, there were always military checkpoints or federal police checkpoints. That was just a part of uh, living there. And you never knew if it was really the military that was stopping you or if it was really the federal police that were stopping you or if it were members of the drug cartel that were dressed up like uh, military and or military, actual military that had been bought and paid for by the cartels. And so we lived our lives um, surrounded by that violence and we traveled almost constantly. The churches that we ministered in were from uh, the U.S. border right across from McAllen, Texas, all the way down to the Pacific Ocean in the state of Oaxaca. And so we traveled uh, the central part of Mexico all the way from north to south uh, regularly. And the Lord was uh, gracious to us and protected us uh, for so many miles 
as we traveled. Uh, we were there for 10 months when our youngest son, Logan, who at the time was eight years old, came down with uh, what we found out later. It's a long story. It's in the book, and you can read it there. But what we found out was a potentially life-threatening condition, and we tried to get it treated in Mexico, and to no avail. It only got worse. And we left on a Saturday, as I recall, maybe a Friday, uh, to after we had been in Mexico for a month trying living there, trying to figure it out, and it only got worse. So we thought we'd go to Edinburgh, Texas, to the Children's Hospital, um, and just spend the weekend there, drive up on Friday, get them into the ER that night. They'd figure it out, right? And we'd be back in Mexico at our home on Monday. Uh, that was in October. We did not return to our house in Mexico until April of the following year. And that was only to, to clean, clean out our house uh, because we could no longer keep renting that house while we weren't living there. And uh, later, God miraculously healed our son Logan. I was there when it happened, and that story is in the book as well. But when we moved back to Mexico, we had lived in a the first term in a city called Salamanca in the geographical center of the country when we moved back uh, into the country after Logan was better we moved to the city of Saltillo which was about 200 miles away from the U.S. border a little closer to his doctors and so uh, one of the things that our mission board asked us to do among other things was to reestablish a training institute for our pastors and young people and after trial and error and prayer and fasting, we felt as though God was leading us to start what we unofficially called a, a traveling Bible institute. Instead of finding property and buying property and building buildings and then subsidizing students from all over the country of Mexico to come and study, we thought it would be a better use of the Lord's money to just take the institute to them. We already had churches all over Mexico, and so we would bring our professors and our textbooks, and we would travel around to ready-made classrooms, right? The churches were already there, Sunday school rooms and sanctuaries, and our students were already there, the pastors and young people. And so like this, we traveled around and, and uh, trained our pastors and young people for a number of years, and God blessed that, uh, those endeavors we were living in Saltillo, in the northeastern part of Mexico, but had traveled down to Salamanca, where we had moved originally for a week of Bible Institute classes. We had rented a, a little apartment for the week, and uh, there were several people there from the United States who were there helping us in those Bible Institute classes, and of course, many of our brothers and sisters from Mexico, of course, were there. Uh, but uh, it was Friday morning, October the uh, 23rd, 2009, early that morning, still dark, that uh, it fell my lot to take my boss at the time, his name is John Parker, he was the president of our mission uh, department of our denomination, uh, I had to take him back to a city called Querétaro, and it was about an hour to the east of Salamanca where we were, and so the plan was to get up that morning and travel there to a bus station. He would get on a bus and travel three and a half hours due south to the Mexico City airport. And he would get on a plane and travel back to Easley, South Carolina, where he was living at the time. That was the plan. 
we got up early that morning. I remember telling Melody, you know, goodbye. I'll see you in a couple of hours. We put John's luggage in the back of the vehicle. I got in the driver's seat. John got in the passenger seat. And down the road we went. Uh, we were uh, enjoying each other's company, we almost immediately began to share our optimism and joy at how the week had gone. God had answered prayer for us, and we were just rejoicing in how God had moved during that week of institute classes. And John is a dear friend and a brother in the Lord. I call him a blood brother for reasons which will soon become apparent, and a wonderful man of God. And we're just driving down the highway uh, speeding along that dark, lonely stretch of road and loving every minute of it. There was nothing wrong with the highway. It was a four-lane road, well-constructed, a grass median, and just driving down the road. The only thing you could say that might be negative about that road is that it was on a very remote uh, section of Mexican wilderness. Once you leave the confines of Salamanca, there's really nothing. No villages, towns, cities, businesses. There's nothing. It's just desolate for miles. And so we were on this lonely stretch of road, early morning, dark as night. And all of a sudden, on that very dark and desolate stretch of highway, we began to encounter what appeared to be broken up chunks of concrete blocks. That's what it looked like in the fast lane. I was traveling in the left lane, 70 miles an hour or so, and we weren't alarmed by the rocks in the road. You are used to that kind of thing in countries like that, things on the road, animals, people, foreign objects, and we never thought anything of it. No warning bells sounded. Uh, but um, so that my tires wouldn't be damaged or the undercarriage of my car damaged, I decided I would switch lanes because there didn't seem to be any rocks in the road in the right lane. And what I tell you next, I tell you from the memories that John Parker has, I don't have any conscious memory of what happened immediately next, but as I started to switch lanes, there were at least three rocks that were thrown from the side of the highway. We never saw anyone, but we know at least three rocks were thrown because three hit our vehicle. One uh, hit John's passenger side view mirror, the other glanced off the top of his door frame, and the third came crashing through the windshield with a tremendous explosion, a little left of center, impacting me in the forehead where you see this dent. Uh, there was a horrific explosion of the windshield. In a fraction of a second, my forehead and nose and eye orbit were all horrifically crushed and caved in. A gaping wound immediately appeared in my head and blood began pulsing out of that wound as I drove down the road. I was blinded by the attack. John thought I had been killed on impact and instinctively reached over and grabbed the steering wheel so the car would stay on the road in the right lane under control. 
why in the moment of impact I didn't jerk the steering wheel and lose control of the vehicle, I can only attribute to the mercy and providence of the Lord. But here we are driving down the road, uh, blood pulsing out of this enormous wound in my forehead, John thinking I'm dead, and then he quickly realized that I was still alive for two reasons. Number one, he heard me breathing or trying to breathe. Uh, I was trying to breathe and my airways were rapidly filling up with blood, so I was rasping and gurgling and rattling and all the things that go along with a dying man trying to get his breath in a situation like that. And so he could tell I was still trying to breathe and I still had life in me. And the a second reason he knew I was still alive was because my left hand instinctively came up to my eye to hold it in my head as we're driving down the road. I don't remember any of that. What I do remember, the first thing I remember is hearing John. And John is not screaming, but he is praying loudly. Oh God, please help us. Oh God, please don't let Mark die. That's what I remember hearing first. I uh, remember asking John what had happened, and he said, and I quote, Mark, buddy, you've been hit in the head with a rock, and I don't think you're going to make it. And then he went back to praying uh, loudly. I can still hear his voice filled with agonizing emotion, asking that God allow me to survive As I told you, I had been immediately blinded by the attack and I was still in the driver's seat, of course, and unable to see. And John was holding on to the steering wheel, telling me when to press the brake and when to accelerate. Uh, And uh, John, of course, his first thought was to get the car off to the side of the road and get it stopped. That was uh, what he wanted to do. And 99% of the time, that's the right thing to do. But what we found out later that we didn't know at the time was that we had just been attacked by a roadside gang of men whose modus operandi is to throw rocks at passing vehicles, and when those vehicles pull over and stop, they have men strategically placed up and down that desolate stretch of highway. They rush the occupants of those vehicles, kill them many times, steal their car, leave them on the road dead. In fact, they killed a girl driving on that same stretch of road two weeks after we went through there. Um, And we had no idea we were in that kind of danger. And so John's first thought is to get the car pulled over and stopped and hopefully try to save my life. I asked John months later after I had recovered why he didn't do that. And he related to me that there was a guardrail in the way. And I said, I, I'm not sure I understand. What, what's that got to do with anything? And he said, well, the guardrail wasn't off the road where guardrails normally are. He said, this guardrail was right on the road. There was literally no place for me to pull over. If I would have stopped, I would have had to have stopped in the right lane of the highway. The guardrail was right on the line. I couldn't, I couldn't pull over. Well, after I recovered, I drove that entire stretch of highway from Salamanca all the way to where we were going, and I can testify to you tonight that there is no guardrail anywhere on that entire stretch of highway. There's not a guardrail where there's supposed to be one. There's certainly not a guardrail on the road, and all I can tell you is that God miraculously put a, put a guardrail in the road that early morning to, for John to see so that he would not pull over, because had he pulled over... 
I can promise you that neither one of us would be alive today to tell the story of God's miraculous providence and protection. And so John sees this guardrail that at the time we didn't know God had put there and we continue to drive down the road. He told me later, Mark, you couldn't have been hit any harder than if someone would have taken a baseball bat and hit you across the head as hard as they could. There was an explosion of blood, not to be unnecessarily crude. There was an explosion of blood in the cab of that vehicle. Uh, I had a white dress shirt on that morning and a pair of blue jeans. My white dress shirt was completely saturated in blood. You could not tell the original color of the shirt. The seat in between my legs was pooling with blood. My blue jeans were covered in blood. The steering wheel, the, the door to my left, the dash, the middle console. I even peppered John with droplets of my blood. And here we are driving down the road in this condition and uh, telling me when to brake and when to accelerate. And uh, John began to talk about needing to get me to a hospital. He didn't know where he was and I was of course incapacitated and that for some reason got my attention and I told him I didn't want to go to a hospital. And I said, John, uh, I said, John, let me drop you off at the bus station and on the way back I'll get it stitched up. Uh, and that's the only time I heard John even come close to laughing during the whole ordeal. He kind of chuckled and said, Mark, I'm not going anywhere this morning. I have to get you to a hospital. And so we drove down the road like that, and uh, he was begging me not to probe the hole in my head. He had told me that I had been hit in the head with a rock, and I thought that meant the rock was inside, so I kept trying to reach inside to pull the rock out, and John was begging me to stop doing that. The rock was that big. It was a jagged piece of broken asphalt. My forehead had stopped the trajectory of that rock. I don't know how fast the rock was going, but I was going 70 miles an hour, and my forehead stopped that rock in an instant, and it was on the driver's side floorboard, my wife has it somewhere in our home in Cincinnati. I'm not sure where it is, but it has my blood on it as a memento of God's miraculous saving work in my life. And so John's begging me not to probe the hole in my head. And um, all of a sudden, John says, I need to pull over. I, he saw a construction vehicle, a, a pickup truck with flashing yellow lights. And it was off to the side of the road. The guardrail had disappeared. And so John asked me to put the brakes on. And, and I did. And he pulled the car over to the, the side of the road and put it in the park. And, and he ran up to this group of construction workers. Now, you have to understand that John doesn't know any Spanish, really. I mean, he can say amen in Spanish. That's pretty easy. And he knows how to ask really important questions when you're in a country and you don't know the language, if you can at least ask certain things in their language that are really important, questions like, ¿Dónde está el baño? And those of you who know a modicum of Spanish might recognize how important that question is. But outside of that, John really can't speak Spanish. He can't understand it. I'm incapacitated. He runs up to this Mexican construction crew. He points them back at me. They see this terrible gaping wound in my forehead. They evidently know about this, the notoriety of this gang on the side of the road. And they frantically wave John 
on. Just go, go, go. And so he runs back to the vehicle and gets me in the passenger seat and reclines the seat and buckles me in and runs around the front of the car and jumps in the driver's seat and slams the door and puts it in drive and squeals off down the highway, not knowing where he is, not knowing where he's going, just driving mile after mile down this desolate stretch of road and his friend is bleeding out on the seat beside him. And uh, I... uh, realized that as I was reclining in the passenger seat that I could actually still see a little bit out of the corner of my right eye. It hadn't totally swollen shut yet. And it was, as to my memory, maybe 30 seconds or a minute after I had been in the passenger seat that my cell phone rang. And I had the presence of mind to be able to take it off my belt and I held it out like that so I could see it and it was Melody calling. Now you have to remember it was early in the morning. No reason for anyone to be awake or around at that time, but she couldn't go to sleep after I left. She had an impression that she needed to call me. And so finally she gave in to that impression and this was her calling me and I was able to push the button and I said, hello. And she said, Mark, are you all right? And I said, no, talk to John. Now John's driving, but he's still praying loudly, frantically. Put yourself in his shoes. I don't have any conscious memory of much of this, but John remembers all of it. And, and so he's praying. He's helpless. He, he can't do anything. He's just driving down the road. And I hear him tell Melody. Again, at the time, we didn't know what had happened. I heard him tell Melody, Melody, we've been in a bad accident. Mark's been hurt bad. It doesn't look good. I don't know what to do. Not the kind of phone call you ever want to receive. And Melody, the Lord gave her grace and strength in that moment. And she told John a word he could say in Spanish that means help. And she instructed him to go until he saw lights and knock on the door. She said, point them at Mark and they'll know what to do. Hang up the phone and now she's burdened with the knowledge that her husband is somewhere in the Mexican wilderness bleeding out and likely to die. And she has to get our boys up at that time and get them dressed and herself ready and then walk a few blocks to the main thoroughfare of that large city and hail a taxi all by herself, get the boys in, herself in, and drive across town to where we're having the Bible Institute classes. And by the time all of that takes place, people are up and starting to get up and around there and they're surprised to see her there without me. And they ask what's going on and she tells them and The pastors there stop and they pray for me. And then two of those pastors, dear friends of ours, get into a vehicle with her and our boys and and start off down the highway towards where we were. They didn't know for sure where we were, but they knew the general direction. And so they speed off down the highway trying to find us. John is uh, driving and all of a sudden he notices lights in the darkness up ahead and discovers that it's a convenience store right off the side of the highway. And so he quickly pulls into the parking lot and pulls the car up under the brightest lights that he could find and runs inside the store still splattered in my blood and does enough gestures that they get the point and ambulance is called. And I can still remember John coming out of that convenience store. He's I can still see the look on his face. He's, it's a look of fear and anxiety. And I'm over here and, and he's coming out. The door's here and he's coming out towards me. But he's looking back inside the store, waving at somebody like this. And he's picked up another Spanish word somewhere along the line. He's saying pronto, pronto. He knows that means now, quick, soon. 
desperately trying to get someone to save my life, right? He comes to my side and heroically uh, fights to stop the bleeding. He's afraid I'm going to drown on my own blood. He's afraid I'm going to go into shock. And uh, he's there with me in the broken glass and the blood and, and all of the turmoil. And God was there in the middle of all of that. And, uh, and um, we're waiting for the ambulance to come. And uh, things are a little different in Mexico when it comes to this, at least that part of Mexico, because there, uh, an ambulance service isn't connected to any hospital. It's just a guy who owns an ambulance. And you have to tell him what hospital to take you to. Well, John doesn't know where any hospital is. He doesn't know the name of any hospital. The only thing he knew was that about 40 minutes up the road, there's a large city where we were headed, Querétaro, millions of people. And again, he thought correctly that that's where the best hospitals would be. And so he was planning on just telling the ambulance driver to go to Querétaro and find a hospital there. Well, 99% of the time, that's the right thing to do. But the doctors who eventually treated me told us that I never would have made it that far had we tried to go all the way there. And so John's praying, waiting for the ambulance to get there. And all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, comes a Mexican man in a business suit speaking English. And he walks up to John and he looks at me and he says, Take your friend to CMQ Hospital. He will be fine. Those were his words. John turns around to tell me, and when he turns back around, the man's disappeared. Now, I don't know who that man was, but probably an angel that God sent to give us life-saving information. CMQ Hospital, as we both found out, wasn't even 10 minutes away. The ambulance finally gets there, and, and John is saying that word again and waving, pronto, pronto, please, and they never got out. The driver, the medic in the ambulance just sat there where they were and with their mouths open in shock looking at me. And John's frantically trying to get someone to help me. And so they don't get out. And so John grabs me by the elbow and, and, and gingerly walks me over to the back of the ambulance. John opens the back doors of the ambulance, pushes me up inside. All the while arguing about going to the hospital. I was losing consciousness waiting for the ambulance and John was afraid that if I lost consciousness that I'd never come back. And so he noticed that every time he told me an ambulance is coming and we're taking you to the hospital, it would, it would wake me up enough to say, no, I don't want to go. Now, I don't know why I didn't want to go to a hospital, but John thought, well, if, if, if that will keep Mark conscious, we'll just keep arguing about going to the hospital. So he just kept telling me, we're taking you to a hospital. I lay myself down on the gurney in the back of the ambulance and he shuts the doors and by that time the driver is out and John is able to communicate CMQ, CMQ, it's pretty easy to understand even if you don't know the language and so the driver knew where that was and he took off down the road. John didn't know where CMQ hospital was and he was afraid the ambulance was going to lose him. He just tore off down the road. Mexico is filled with uh, traffic circles or roundabouts. I don't know what you call them here, but you know, they don't have any real stop sign. You just go with the flow of traffic. I made more Mexicans mad at me at those things because I'd stop and the guy behind me would honk and then I'd go and the guy in the circle would honk. And John said that ambulance never touched his brakes one time, careening around those traffic circles. John thought, if I lose this ambulance, I'll never find Mark again because he had no idea where CMQ Hospital was. But we get to the hospital and they get me into the ER. When I get there, 
I'm the only patient in the emergency room. And so they're able to put their entire attention on me. And John said it was clean, it was orderly, it was professional. And they told us, uh, told my wife later, that people who arrive at the ER with my kind of head wound normally arrive dead. And they also told Melody that if I did survive, they could offer little hope that I would be able to see or walk or talk. They just didn't know the extent of the damage. Melody finally gets there. They had been searching for the hospital. No one knew where CMQ Hospital was. And there's a little bit of a cultural thing here that maybe I should tell you about. The Mexican culture is very polite and it shows up in their language. For instance, they don't, they're so polite, they don't want to tell you things that they think you don't want to hear. And so even believers, Christians, will do everything but lie uh, to keep from telling you something they think you don't want to hear. They're just very polite and very courteous. And, but how that plays out when you're looking for something and asking for directions, I've had this happen many times. Drive into a village or a city, not know where a certain thing is, roll down my window, there's a guy on the corner, and I say, hey, can you tell me where such and such a place is? And he says, yeah, go down here about... Three blocks, turn left at the light, and it'll be up there on your right. He has no idea. He just knows, I don't want to hear, no, I don't know where that is. And he figures I'm never going to see him again, so he gives me bogus directions. Well, they didn't know where CMQ Hospital was, and so they kept asking, and people were telling them, go here and go there. Finally, they get to the hospital, and uh, Melody has to walk past the vehicle. She's feet away from the vehicle, and she told me later you could still you could smell the blood even from feet away as she walked past the vehicle into the ER. She stood at the glass looking at me laying on a hospital cot, my head grotesquely swollen, blood coming out of every orifice in my head, hardly recognizable. The nurses soon realized who she was, and they cleaned me up and put a bandage over my head and invited her in and I knew she was there because I could hear her crying over on my left side and I said to her hey babe how are you and she said honey that's the wrong question how are you and I said oh I'm doing great and she said I don't think you are and I said no I, I'm doing great I said the doctor came in and told me how he's going to fix me and rather skeptically she said did he and I said yeah he said they're going to take a bone out of my back and put it in my head. Well, that's not at all what he said. I think maybe that was the morphine that was uh, <laughs> talking about that time. I don't remember much about the emergency room. I remember Melody in that brief conversation. I remember someone over on my right side by my head. I found out later it was a pastor, but I remember someone sobbing uncontrollably here. And then I remember, of course, everything's in Spanish. And I remember thinking that the nurse was asking me to unbutton my shirt. And so I was clumsily fumbling with my buttons trying to do so. And I remember her kind of laughing and, and because I had misunderstood. She was just telling me that's what she was going to do. And that's all I remember of that. Uh, CT scans and x-rays revealed that I had a crushed skull. My forehead looked like someone had jackhammered a sidewalk. I had a huge gaping hole in my skull here and 
bone and uh, skull all busted up over here. My left eye orbit was crushed. My nose was crushed. My forehead was crushed. I had a crack in my cranium that started here and went all the way back to the crown of my head. Another crack in my skull that started here went all the way back to the crown of my head. They took me into surgery. They called a neurosurgeon. He wasn't in the hospital, and they knew they needed a neurosurgeon and a plastic surgeon to do the surgery. And so they called the neurosurgeon. He was walking out his door on his way to a conference in Mexico City when they called, caught him right before he left. And he came to the hospital, and he found Melody, and he gave her a piece of paper, and he said, you need to sign this so I have permission to do surgery on your husband. And she said, sir, I don't mean to offend you, but are you qualified? Do you know what you're doing? And she had every right to ask that. The only thing we knew about Mexican healthcare at the time was that it was horrible and terrible. And, and, and we, of course, we didn't know everything, but that's all we knew at the time. And so she had every right to ask about his credentials. And he said to her, Senora, we don't have time to have this conversation. He said, your husband has about 20 minutes before he goes into shock. And if he goes into shock, I'll never get him back. I know what to do to save his life, but I have to do it right now. So not knowing if she was doing the right thing or not, praying that she was, tears coming down her cheeks, she signed her name, and they wheeled me back into surgery. I was in surgery for hours. While I was on the, in the surgery room, our oldest son, Jordan, was on our Mexican cell phone receiving calls from our Mexican brothers and sisters who were finding out about it and calling, and he was updating them. And Melody was on our... English cell phone. John had texted his wife, Kathy, and she had put a message on Facebook and people all over the United States, all over the world, began contacting us, telling us they're praying for us. People, many people that we never knew, never, and we still don't know, but called us, emailed us, sent us cards saying, we're praying for you. And I'm here tonight I believe with all of my heart I'm here tonight because God's people prayed and God answered their prayers. And I stand before you as a miracle of divine grace and power. I shouldn't be here. I should be six feet under. There's no reason, there's no other explanation why I'm standing here today except God in His mercy. And miracle-working power saved my life. Surviving? There's no medical reason why I should still be standing. I should be a vegetable, right? I have a friend who was in a motorcycle accident and had a traumatic brain injury. I have a traumatic brain injury. Medical people who know his injury and know mine say mine was worse than his, and yet today Philip is a five-year-old in his mind. I, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't pretend to have all the answers. I don't know why God allows that in some and, and others. I, all I know is that God in His mercy and power protected me and has allowed me to be here and tell this story wherever I go. I tell sometimes the Lord that I, I really don't want to tell it. Uh, you may or may not understand this, but it takes a toll uh, on me to tell it. The devil fights when he knows I'm going to tell it. And the Lord reminds me Son, this isn't your story, it's my story. And I gave, it for, I gave it to you to tell, and so I tell it to you tonight. I was in the surgery for hours. Uh, they 
put my skull back together with two titanium plates. I have one titanium plate that starts here and goes over here. Another one that starts here and goes over to the edge of my eyebrow. In fact, you can still feel the corner of that titanium plate right here. After church, there'll be a line, and if you'd like to... Um... <laughs> Not really. That's a joke. Came out of surgery. The surgeons came out and gave everyone a wonderful report. I had come through the surgery well. They were able to fully repair the damage. Now, they didn't know what kind of uh, effect the brain injury would have. They didn't know if I'd be able to see out of this eye. They just didn't know. I was in the hospital for a week from Friday to Friday. And within the course of those days, they determined that I was able to talk and walk and think. Um, they uh, told Melody that it might be a year before I was normal, and she'd never lived with a normal husband before, so she was happy to uh, hear that maybe I'd be normal. Now, I don't know. I don't know where you go, somewhere in Columbus, well, a major hospital around here, but if you have a brain surgery and a plastic surgery and you spend seven days in a hospital and you have to pay the hospitalists and the nurses and the bed and, and the surgery and all of that, you're talking, what, hundreds of thousands of dollars, probably, at least. This cost us $17,000. The only catch was you had to pay it before they let you leave the hospital. So Melody called John, who had gone back to the U.S., and told him. And God's people responded and sent money so we could get out of the hospital. And then we were members of a, a insurance, it's not really insurance, but Christian healthcare ministries. And when we sent our bills in to them, and they sent us the money, we were able to pay back the people who had given us the money uh, we were in the, I was in the hospital for a week, and then the neurosurgeon wasn't about to let me drive home. I wasn't allowed to drive for weeks after that anyway, but we lived seven hours to the north in Saltillo, and he didn't let us leave for two weeks after I'd been in the hospital for a week. So we had to get a hotel and stay there for two weeks. And every time he saw me, he would say, Que milagro, que maravilla, what a miracle. Um, and we told him, thank you for what you did, but we serve a God in heaven who, he's the reason I'm here. He's the reason I'm alive. And um, there's so many things I'm skipping over here, so many miracles, big and small, that I don't have really time to tell you, just hitting the high points. I was in the hospital, that was on a Friday. Um, Saturday, as you can imagine, I awakened with an excruciating headache, not only because of the head wound, not only because of the traumatic brain injury, but they had given Melody strict instructions that night that I was to lay flat the entire night under no circumstances was I to get up. And secondly, when they brought me out of the surgery room, my head was already grotesquely swollen, right? And they had wrapped my head in white bandages like this, and then like this. And then they, they stuffed about 27 miles of gauze up my nose. At least that's what it felt like when they pulled it all out the next day. All you could see when I went to my room were black and blue, swollen, shut eyes. Even knowing me, you couldn't recognize me. And, and they had told her, he's to keep these bandages on all night and he's not to get up. Very important, very crucial. I woke up in the middle of the night. I don't really know what time it was, but the only thought that I had come to mind was I need to get a shower. And, and so I sat up on the edge of the bed, which is a miracle in itself, because the next day when they wanted me to get up, I didn't have the physical strength to do so. 
I sat up on the edge of the bed and started ripping these bandages off my head just as fast as I could. The commotion awakened Melody and she came to my side and she begged me to stop, but I was belligerent and, and stubborn and refused to stop. The only time I've ever been stubborn in our marriage, by the way. She ran out into the hallway and called for the nurses. They came running to my side and laid me back down in the bed and wrapped me back up again and said, Senor Mark, you have to lay down and you can't take these bandages off. And a half hour later, I was up again doing that. So I woke Saturday with this terrible headache and they had given me all the pain medicine they were allowed to give me and I was still just, just in crazy amounts of pain and I was writhing and calling out and she of course couldn't stand to see me like that and so she went downstairs to where our pastors had stayed all night you know when things like this happen to you you find out real quick who your friends are we have no complaints about the church by the way the church came through big time for us they loved us prayed for us gave to us and we're so thankful to be a part of God's great big family those pastors had stayed there all night long and she came down to them and said, brothers, would you please, please come up and pray for my husband? He's in so much pain. And they came up to my room and they surrounded my bed and I'll be honest with you, they didn't know a lot about hospital etiquette or bedside manners because they just lifted their voices like it was camp meeting. The old timers, Brother Tony, would have said they bombarded heaven. I don't know if they use that terminology around here, but... But I mean, they just prayed like it was camp meeting. Oh God, would you touch our brother? Would you take away his pain? They prayed like that for a while and they said amen and then they marched single file out of the room uh, to go back downstairs. All except Brother Kuko. Now Brother Kuko, I need to tell you about, uh, that's not his name, that's his nickname. But just about every Mexican is called a nickname. They're rarely called their given name. His given birth name is Refugio, Refuge, Refugio. His full name is Refugio Sanchez, but everyone called him Cuco. That's what you're called when your name is Refugio, your nickname is Cuco. And I tried to tell Brother Cuco on more than one occasion that Cuco sounds funny to English ears because Cuco sounds a lot like cuckoo, right? Which means loco, crazy. And he never saw the humor in any of that, but... Brother Kuko was a godly man and a prayer warrior. In fact, I can't think of anyone besides my wife that I'd rather have pray for me than Brother Kuko. And uh, besides, he was the only one there that knew how I felt. He had been saved a little later in life. He was studying agricultural engineering at a university in Saltillo when God saved him and called him to plant a church in his home village in the middle of Mexico. And he went back in obedience to the call of God to plant a church. And while he was planting that church, he was stoned twice by angry mobs opposed to the gospel. So he knew what it felt like to get hit with rocks. Kuko stayed outside back and forth praying in the hallway. And Melody came in in a few moments and said, Honey, how's your pain? And I was able to raise my hand to say it's all gone. And she went out to tell Brother Kuko, and he interrupted her. He said, I know, I know, God just witnessed to me that he'd taken away his pain. There's so much more to say, but let me just fast forward. Um, when Maybe one more thing. When we were, maybe I was in surgery, Brother Kuko was there, and John was there, and, and John was just about ready to have a mental breakdown. He was going crazy because of all he had seen and heard, and 
he asked Brother Kuko to read Psalm 91. And I wish you knew Brother Kuko. He's, he's short, about like that, maybe like that. Squat, big jowls, deep, raspy voice, and he speaks Spanish just about faster than anybody I've ever heard. And John said, somehow, let him know he wanted him to read Psalm 91. And so Brother Cuco read Psalm 91, and it sounded something like this. El que habita al abrigo del Altísimo morará bajo la sombra del Omnipotente. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Diré yo a Jehová, esperanza mía y castillo mío, mi Dios en él confiaré. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God in him will I trust. Él te librará del lazo del cazador, de la peste destructora. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. Con sus plumas te cubrirá y debajo de sus alas estarás seguro. He shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night nor of the arrow or rock that flies by day because you have made the Lord who is your refuge your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, neither shall any plague come near your dwelling. He shall give His angels charge over you. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. The power of God's Word. We uh, went back home to Saltillo. I had lost so much blood and I was so weak. And they, I wasn't there long enough for them to do any kind of physical therapy. And they told her, now, he's going to want to lay around all day. And they were right. And they said, if he's going to get better, you're going to have to get him up every day and walk him around or he won't get better. And I remember those days laying on the couch, my head feeling like it weighed 100 pounds and literally hardly any strength at all. Melody would faithfully get me off the couch and we'd go walking. And I would walk about like this. Just maybe this fast and this far. And first day we walked maybe maybe three-quarters of the way back the aisle until I was exhausted and barely made it back to the couch and collapsed. And then the next day we made it out into the lobby, maybe to the table, right, and, and came back. And the next day just a little bit further. And in six weeks or so, I had recovered sufficiently to get back to missionary work, a testament to God's miraculous work. I tell you this story for two reasons. Number one, so that you might be encouraged to to know that God still works miracles today. And secondly, to challenge all of us to a deeper, more radical abandonment of ourselves to Jesus. I should tell you this, that in those weeks after the attack on my life and the surgery, I had an angry red scar that started here and went all the way up to the top of my head and then kind of came down in a half moon to the edge of my, the tip of my nose and when I walked into church or anywhere for that matter, that's what people saw. I mean, 
when people talked to me, they didn't look me in the eyes. They looked at my forehead while they were talking. And, and I, I couldn't blame them. I would have done the same thing. It's just what you saw when you looked at me. And our pastor and his wife had come to visit us while I was convalescing at home. Dear friends of ours, his name is, if you just pronounce it English, it's Dolores. And I know that's a feminine name, but in Spanish, Dolores means pains. I don't know if you can imagine your mother bearing you and then telling you you're a pain, but that's in essence what he's called, Dolores. And his wife, Silvia, Silvia, they came to visit us. And as is their practice, they wanted to pray before they left. And I remember that day, standing in the doorway of our little home, I was here, Dolores, Sylvia, and Melody, and he prayed a beautiful prayer. And when he said amen, he looked at me. Now I realize he wasn't looking at me, he was looking at this scar on my forehead. And I'll never forget the words he said to me. He said, brother, you know, you can now say you have the marks of the gospel on you. Can I be honest with you? I, I had never thought about it that way, and frankly, I still don't, but they do. I can take you to a lot of Mexican people who will tell you to your face, those are the marks of the gospel on our missionary. I've heard them say, you came tell my family about Jesus. And in the commission of my responsibilities as a missionary, I was attacked and these are the marks of the gospel. Every time I tell that story and think about what he said to me, I, I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6 where he says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And I want to ask you tonight as I close, shouldn't all of us as believers be marked? Not with an angry red scar on our forehead, but shouldn't all of us as believers be marked with a fervent love for God? Shouldn't all of us be marked with a love for lost souls? Shouldn't all of us be marked with the winsome spirit of Jesus so that when people look at us, when they interact with us, they catch the aroma, they, they see a little bit of Jesus in us? Shouldn't all of us be marked people? When people come into our sphere of influence and interact with us, they know there's something different because we've been marked by Jesus. I don't know why God's allowed me to live. I'm certainly not worthy of the least of His mercies. I'm 53 years old, and I know to many of you I'm just a young buck still, but I'm 53, and I know I have many more years behind me than I do ahead of me. And I've told the Lord on more than one occasion, I don't want to waste the rest of my life. Whatever years I have left, I don't want to waste those years. I want my life to count. Could I tell you something tonight? And I, I, I hope you'll listen to me now in these next few moments. Hell is too horrible. And heaven is too wonderful. And eternity is too long for us to putter around on the porch of time preoccupied with materialistic treasure hunting, trying to make ourselves more comfortable and have more things, when people all around us are perishing because they need Jesus. I'll be honest with you, I came back from Mexico, Brother Tim, and I, I, I struggled with skepticism and cynicism when I came back to our churches. And I sat in our churches and I, 
I, I would go on Facebook and I would hear the kind of things that would cause us to melt down here. On Facebook, someone moaning because they couldn't find the right color of wallpaper for their bathroom. And it ruins their day, their week. Our trash cans are full of things that people in Mexico and other parts of the world would count as treasures. We're talking today at lunch. You think about our country. I travel in the work of the Lord all over the world. I've been on five different continents and countries on all of those continents. But it's in America, the Christian nation, where we do not have a dearth of God's Word. You can hear a gospel message on any street corner, on the radio, on the television, on the internet. You can hear truth all over here in the United States. And yet, we're the country that can't figure out what a woman is anymore. We're the country where mainline evangelical denominations are now licensing bishops and, and leaders who are homosexual, right? This world, this culture needs us as believers to stand up and be counted, to make a difference for our lives to count. One of these days we'll stand before God and as the songwriter said, we'll wish we would have given Him more. Our friends, Sam and Nancy Davis, had been missionaries in Mexico for decades before we ever got there and a year and four months after I was nearly killed, Nancy and Sam were confronted with a cartel roadblock and they had just decided days before perhaps that they would do whatever it took not to be caught alive. Because in those days, especially the Seda cartel was kidnapping people and torturing them, trying to extort money. And Sam and Nancy said, if, if it's in our power to do so, we'll, we'll die rather than be caught. And so Sam knew it was the cartel roadblock and he had a nice pickup truck and that's one of the things they wanted. And he floored that pickup truck and busted through the cartel roadblock. But as he did so, cartel members with machine guns basically on either side of the road opened up on that truck and a bullet struck Nancy in the back of the head and killed her. I was in southern Mexico on a missions trip visiting churches in the jungles of southern Mexico when Melody called me and told me the news. I canceled the rest of the trip and flew up to McAllen, Texas so I could be there for her funeral. I don't know, you may not know the name Sam and Nancy, but some of you may remember for a week or two it was national news. Fox News and CNN, American missionary killed by drug cartels in Mexico. We got there, we were staying on the campus of the Rio Grande Bible Institute in Edinburgh, Texas. There were friends of ours who were there. We went to language school there, dear friends. And uh, they didn't come from our background. They came from various faith traditions, but none of them came from our background. And we found out very quickly that God's family is a lot larger than us four and no more. That there were people who didn't believe exactly like we did that loved God just as much, if not more, than we did. That sacrificed just as much as we did, if not more. And, and one of the local TV stations had called RGBI because they, that was a very 
well-known evangelical place, and they wanted to know if maybe they knew Sam and Nancy. And I don't know who picked up the phone, but they said, do you know Sam and Nancy? We want to do an interview with someone who knew them. And the guy, whoever it was, said, well, we don't know Sam and Nancy, but we know people who knew Sam and Nancy talking about Melody and me. And so a TV interview was kind of set up before we ever even knew anything about it. And we got to the little trailer. They were letting us stay in on the campground or on the campus. And I'd been there maybe 30 minutes and the TV van pulled up and the news reporter hopped out and the cameraman got out and they came into the little living room there. And while the cameraman was setting up, Melody was talking to the news reporter and in passing, she was just telling him a little bit about our background. And she said, in fact, my husband was nearly killed a little over a year ago. And he, she told him the story. And of course, he knew Nancy, our friend, had been killed. And so we did the interview, not even five minutes. How did you know Sam and Nancy? Where do you live? How are the, what's the situation like in Mexico where you live? You know. And then it was over. The camera was turned off. And the, and the reporter who was sitting on the couch across from us, there was a coffee table. We were on two chairs. He was sitting on the couch. He didn't get up. He just sat there and looked at us. And, and we could tell he wanted to say something, but the interview was over and he wasn't saying anything. And finally he said, now, you all have small children, right? And we said, yeah, we have three, three small boys. And he hesitated. And then he said this. He said, are you planning on going back over to Mexico? And he didn't have to say what he was thinking. I knew what he was thinking. How irresponsible. You've nearly been killed, and now your friend has been killed, and you have small children, and you're going to take them over there again into all that mess, into all that danger. That's not very responsible. That's not very loving for you as parents to do that right? That's what he was saying. Now, he didn't say that, but I knew that's what he was, I knew that's what his point was. And I'm reminded of the words of Jesus, who said, unless you hate mom or dad or son or daughter, you can't follow me. In other words, sometimes following Jesus looks like hate to the world. And I told him, I said, well, no, we're, we're going back over there in just a couple of days. That's where we live. That's where our ministry is. My godly wife spoke up and she said, you know, when you follow God's call, your personal safety can't be your number one priority. And she's right. I want to challenge us tonight. I don't know who all I'm speaking to, but the majority of you here tonight are believers. I want to ask you, how much is Jesus worth to you? How much do you love Jesus? Is he worth taking any risk that he might ask you to take? for His kingdom, for the sake of His name, for the glory of His will being done in your life. I'm not pretending tonight that God's going to call all of us here tonight to go to some dangerous mission field. I, I know that's not going to happen, but He might call some of you. But most of us, He might call to take risks in other ways. Things that might be humbling for us if we were to do them, or maybe even a little bit dangerous or embarrassing, but... God may call us to step up in an act of faith and obedience and do some things for Him because we're all commanded, Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And there's a lot of Christians today who interpret that verse like this, seek God's kingdom first, yes, but my kingdom is second, right underneath that. Now seek God's kingdom first, but then right underneath that. But that's not at all what Jesus is saying. 
Jesus is saying, you seek my kingdom, you take care of my kingdom, and I'll take care of yours. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things. What's he talking about? He's talking about our kingdom. All the things that you need, God will take care of that. You take care of God's kingdom. You make sure God's kingdom is flourishing. And I'll make sure your kingdom is where it needs to be. Seek God's kingdom first. So I don't know. I'm not in the best of health. I have a couple of pretty major physical things that go on in my life. If God would give me another 25 years, He would be so generous to do so. But I want every day to count for Him. And I want to tell the Lord again tonight that He can take me 100%. Not one thing am I withholding. I want Him to have all there is of Mark Sankey. Whatever that means, He can tell me where to go. He can tell me where to stay. He can tell me what to say. He can tell me who to speak to. He can tell me whatever. And 100% I am by His grace sold out. Surrendered. I want my life to count for Jesus. I want Melody to come to the piano, please. And I'd like for you to stand tonight. You've been a wonderful crowd to speak to. And in closing, I want to sing my testimony to you, just a chorus of a song. But I want to tell the Lord again, in front of you, that I want my life to count. Not so that when I'm dead and gone, people sit around the kitchen table and talk about how great Mark Sankey was. No, no. But oh, that somehow, when I'm dead and gone, and by God's grace in heaven, maybe I will have left the aroma of a life lived for the glory of God. So that when people see my life, they see Jesus and they're drawn to His holy name. I want my life to count for Him. Listen. I want my life to count for Jesus. For earthly things will quickly fade. No need to add to worldly riches. I only seek eternal gain. I want my life to count for Jesus. For earthly things will quickly fade. There's no need to add to worldly riches. I only seek eternal gain. If you can say that last line tonight, I only seek eternal gain, you're a rich person. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. I have treasures laid up. Not a lot in this life. You could look at my checking account and you'd find out real quick, I don't have a lot here. But I'm a rich man.
because I've got treasures laid up over there and I want to lay up some more. I don't know. But I just feel like maybe tonight there are some other believers besides myself who would like to tell the Lord that tonight. And sometimes the very best thing we can do is tell three worlds, I want my life to count for Jesus. So I'm going to sing that chorus again at least one more time, maybe twice. And maybe there would be others who would like to join me at the front and maybe just come in and, and stand around the front here as believers, as a church. You don't have to. No pressure to if you don't feel compelled to do so or you don't want to. But there might be someone here who would join me and say, that's exactly what I want to do. Young people, maybe it'd be good for you just to say, I, I, I want my life to count for Jesus. The devil would like to tell you that you're going to miss a lot of things. But could I tell you, I've had more joy, fun, happiness, satisfaction when I surrendered my life to Jesus. I did my own thing. And it led to guilt and shame and poverty of spirit. And I want my life to count. If you want your life to count and you like to tell the Lord again tonight about it, I would invite you to come gather around the front. Let's have prayer together as I sing. I want my life to count for Jesus. For earthly things will quickly fade. No need to add to worldly riches. I only seek eternal gain. I feel like I've been shamed tonight. I'm ashamed that I complained about things, worldly things. I complain about this or I complain about that. I'm ashamed when I can't get to worship God a couple times a week. I'm ashamed when the world seems to appeal more to me than spending time with God in prayer or His Word. When I compare my life to the testimony that Brother Sankey gave us this evening I'm jealous of the marks of the gospel that he carries I'm so ashamed I didn't do more so many little things in this world needle us, occupy us. And I wonder just how much my life is making a difference when it takes so little to, to derail me or distract me. What a beautiful message.
Thank God for these that have come. I'm ashamed when I'm not living as holy as I know I ought to be. So I'm going to ask Mark to sing another verse. And maybe there's others that would like to come and make that commitment to God and find the real abundant life that Jesus is talking about. Can't hardly add anything to this message. It, it was like looking into a mirror and seeing all the wrong things. So, if anybody else needs to pray, you come on. Mark will pray for us all. I want my life to count for Jesus, for earthly things will quickly fade. No need to add to worldly riches. I only see eternal gain. I'm going to sing it one more time, and I'm always, always convicted and challenged when I see the folks who step out, because usually it's an older person that leads the way. And they've given their lives, and they're still saying at 70, 80, I don't know, maybe I'm making you older than what you are, but I want my life to count. And I do. And we've already asked you to come, and, and I'm not wanting to put any pressure, but sometimes, could I just say this? Sometimes God will only give us the victory that we need when we mark ourselves. We're willing to step out and just let, let everyone know this is my commitment. Right. So don't, if you need to come, no pressure, but if you need to, if you know right. God's speaking to you, right. don't get cheated out of a blessing. Just come with all the rest of us who are here and let God fill you afresh and anew tonight. Renew your commitment. I'll sing it one more time and then we'll pray. I want my life to count for Jesus for earthly things will quickly fade. No need to add to worldly riches, I only seek eternal gain. Pray with me. Father, we're thankful tonight for the sense of your spirit that we feel in our hearts. We're thankful for your faithfulness that has spoken to us again. Lord, we have no right to talk about any sacrifice that we make for you. Lord, we've never made a sacrifice for you. In light of the cross, that's the sacrifice. Lord, you're the one who has sacrificed, not us. We're simply trying to pay back a small part of a great debt that we'll never be able to fully repay. 
And so, Lord, would you take our lives as an offering of love and worship to you? Take our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is our rational, reasonable act of worship back to you for what you've done for us. Your mercies that you've poured out on us. Your mercies that are new every morning. Your forgiveness of sin. The times that you've picked us up again and again and again. Lord, all that you've done for us, we just want to offer our lives back to you. We don't want to just say with our lips, thank you. But we want to say with our lives, Lord, we're willing to live for you. We're willing to die for you, but we're willing to live for you, Lord. I pray that you would enter every captive heart here around the front and in the rest of this building tonight. Fill us with fresh wind and fresh fire of the Holy Spirit. I pray, oh God, that you would help all of us as believers to renew our surrender to you, to tell you once again that we're willing to go anywhere and do anything and be what you want us to be if only, Lord, somehow you can work through us and flow through us so that the people around us can see Jesus and the people around us might be changed because of our life and the light of your spirit within us. I pray, oh God, for this church. There are other churches represented here tonight, but I pray for this one, for Pastor Tony and the people here at Church of God of Licking County. I pray that you would just empower and enable them today. Give them that fresh touch that they need of encouragement to keep going, to keep determining in their spirits that they're going to reach out and reach up and continue to do the work of the kingdom here. May this church be a light on a hill. Oh God, your coming is closer than it's ever been. And Lord, we want to be ready. We don't want to be found asleep. But Lord, we want somehow to be found busy in your service, busy in your kingdom, living the abundant life. And it's for all of us, Lord. There's no one here tonight who can't live that abundant life through the power of your spirit. And so I pray that you administer to every heart, knock on every door, and may we open to you and we hear your voice. And may you come in and sup with us and us with you. For Lord, we want to love you more than we ever have before. And we want our life to count for you, Jesus. Go with us to our homes, but Lord, may we continue to think about what you've talked to us about tonight. Bring us back tomorrow ready to worship you, Jesus. We ask it in your name. Amen. That's an easy chorus to sing. By the way, do you know that chorus? Anyone here know that chorus that I just sang? All right, you're going to have to help me out. I'll give you the words, but we need to sing that at least a couple of times as a congregation. I want my life to count for Jesus. Here we go. I want my life to count for Jesus, for earthly things, for earthly things will quickly fade, will quickly fade. No need to add, no need to add to worldly riches to worldly riches. I only seek, I only seek eternal gain, eternal gain. That sounds good. Sing it again. I want my life. I want my life to count for Jesus, to count for Jesus, for earthly things, for earthly things will quickly fade, 
will quickly fade. No need to add to worldly riches. No need to add to worldly riches. I only seek. I only seek eternal gain. You know what? I believe God is doing something new here tonight. He's doing something special in some hearts. And I can't see your heart tonight. I can only see what you see of me, and that's my face. But I believe with all of my heart that the Holy Spirit of God is working right here. And something's happening that's going to last for eternity. The best days, I know you've had some great days, but the best days are ahead. The best days are ahead. Can we just ask the Lord tonight as we leave. I'm not going to pray again. We're just going to be dismissed. We'll sing it one more time and then we'll be dismissed. But can we just ask the Lord, this is what I need. Lord, help me to see from eternity's point of view. Because it's so easy to get caught up with the here and now and all the things, the busy schedule and the things that we're worried about. But one second on the other side and we'll see things so clearly. Fanny Crosby wrote, I long to rise in the arms of faith. That's what I want. Lord, raise me up in the arms of faith to be closer drawn to you, to see this world and my life from your perspective. Amen? Let's sing it one more time and then we'll be dismissed. I want my life to count for Jesus. For earthly things. For earthly things will quickly fade. Will quickly no need to add, no need to add to worldly riches, to worldly riches. I only seek eternal gain, eternal gain. What time is service tomorrow, Brother Tony? 10 a.m. If you don't have a church to be at, be here. And a meal to follow. You don't want to miss that. There'll be a meal in church, spiritual food and afterwards as well. Thank you for being here tonight. God bless you. You're